Welcome. You made it to the Secret Society of Success. In this not-so-secret podcast, we interview L&D changemakers about how they approach the evolving corporate environment and cultivate their own careers. We hope that from their stories, you find lessons and inspirations to make yourself, your people, and your organizations more successful. In this first season, we're exploring the topic of hybrid learning, what that means at different organizations, why it is increasingly important, and how L&D leaders can invest in the right resources to best leverage it. Today, we're going to talk about how to decide what the right mix of hybrid learning is for your strategy. To do this, we've invited Brian Washburn to talk this through. Brian is a co-founder of Endurance Learning, author of What's Your Formula, and host of the podcast, Train Like You Listen. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Brian, you know, we shared a little bit about your background in the intro, uh, but why don't you share a little bit about your background in L&D and uh, the philosophy behind endurance learning? Yeah. So I think my start in the world of training might even be traced back to uh, my freshman year, the end of my freshman year of college at the George Washington University, when I tried out to be the mascot at the school. And that was an opportunity for me to really tap into my creative side and figure out, you know, kind of the sky was the limit to engage people. And so if you fast forward um, a little bit more, I actually began doing training of people about 25 years ago as a Peace Corps volunteer. And in the time since, I mostly worked in the nonprofit space. I started as a GED instructor at a youth center in Washington, D.C. I've led training teams at organizations that focus on foster care or iBanking. Um, and then the idea for endurance learning came along at some point. And our vision is really that every learning experience can be engaging and lead to change. And so you combine the mascotting with um, work in Paraguay as a Peace Corps volunteer and work in nonprofits that oftentimes have to run on a shoestring budget and kind of combine all of that. And that's really where the philosophy of endurance learning came along. But beyond all of that experience, I had the opportunity uh, to write a book that was released last year, and you mentioned it, called What's Your Formula? Uh, Combine Learning Elements for Impactful Training. And that really revolves around a periodic table of elements of effective and engaging training. And so when we think of all the different ways that people can learn, I love that we're talking here about a hybrid approach, because at the end of the day, while the book is called What's Your Formula, and while we're talking here about some different contexts for that hybrid may work, the fact of the matter is that there's no one right answer to yeah. a formula. The key is to find the right formula that works for each organization or each team with which we're working. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate you sharing the background, and I love that concept. I think that's when we're going to spend a lot of time uh, during this conversation unpacking, which is, you know, not that there's not there's never one right answer. It's the right answer for you. And how do you help figure out what that is, right? What are the steps to take to actually decide what that right answer is in the context of your organization? To level set the conversation, Brian, I'd love it if you could, from your perspective, define for us, what does hybrid learning mean to you? Yeah, I love the fact that we're going to 
set the level here as we get started, because th there are so many terms that we tossed out that people just assume we're talking about the same thing because we're using the same word. And it's not necessarily the case. Like I drive a hybrid vehicle now. I have driven gas powered vehicles. I have had a Nissan Leaf for a while and it was all electric. And now my Honda CRV is hybrid. So it mixes gas and battery. And that's two things. And so a lot of times when people think hybrid, they think two things. And when I use that term, I think hybrid can have all sorts of things, right? It's But basically the key there is that there's some sort of mix, but it doesn't have to be just two things. Um, Post-pandemic, I've heard a lot of people use the term hybrid to describe a mix of virtual, which is what we all had to do during the lockdown, and in-person. You know, we're, we're returning to in-person. But I would broaden that definition a bit simply to mean, you know, when I'm thinking of hybrid or when I'm using that term here, it's a mix of more than one learning delivery method. So it could include in-person, it could include virtual, both of those are live instructor-led. It could include e-learning, which is oftentimes self-guided. It could be self-directed learning paths, informal learning um, as part of an overall learning strategy. So a lot of those things I think can be blended into some sort of hybrid approach. I think that definition makes a lot of sense to me. I think the focus really being, it's the mix. It's a mix mm -hmm. of delivery approaches or learning approaches, if you will, is really what hybrid is. So I think where we really want to focus this discussion is, what's the right mix for me? <laughs> I yep. think that you hit on it perfectly earlier, Brian, when you said, you know, there's not one right answer. And, and I love that philosophy. It's a philosophy I've applied in, in my profession with my teams in a sales organization, because I completely agree with you. So let's actually unpack the specifics. Like what are the variables that might influence how you determine what the right formula of hybrid would be in the context of your organization? So I've got a bunch of terms here that you and I prepped before. Let's yep. just start going down each of those and say, okay, well, how do you make the decision based on factor A or factor B or factor C? And hopefully give the audience a lot of uh, fun stuff to take away. Sound good? That sounds great. I love it. Awesome. So let's start with budget. That's always a big question, right? Well, yep. how do you use budget as a factor to consider what the right delivery method is? Yeah. So, and I think this is a really good one to start with because oftentimes it's the first thing that is put in front of us, right? right. And so when budget's a consideration, uh, a lot of times it can be cost prohibitive to allow people to travel, which oftentimes is a big consideration, especially with dispersed teams. And so um, this, this, this could be a situation in which you turn to virtual training. So um, perhaps one element to that hybrid approach could be um, making sure that things are virtual so that no matter where you are in the world, um, you can take advantage of the technology and still have something that's facilitated. An advantage to a facilitated experience, whether you're in-person or virtual, but when we're talking about budget, you know, sometimes we have to go virtual. A big advantage of that is that you can have live discussions and um, you can have activities with real-time feedback. And the reason I mention this is because I was working on a project just last week and I was reviewing an e-learning, a self-directed e-learning project with a customer. And um, the subject matter experts, when we were going over an, uh, an assessment question, um, one of them said, you know, I'd choose choice A. And the other one said, actually, I'd choose choice B. And so we, we realized, wow, that would be a great 
question for facilitated situation. But because we were creating e-learning, we had to be much more specific and much more um, kind of dogmatic in terms of what we allowed people to answer, how we allowed people to answer. So I think that even when budget is a concern, I love having some sort of live element as an opportunity to learn because you can have that facilitated discussion. You can throw things out where there is gray area and you're able to kind of engage with that gray area. Some disadvantages to virtual training include the fact that um, presenters or participants who aren't comfortable with the technology and believe it or not, two plus years after we all started to go to Zoom or Teams or whatever, there are still some people, both presenters and participants, who aren't comfortable with that technology of, of going to breakout rooms. Some people yeah. will still leave a session <laughs> when you put breakout rooms up. Yeah. Um, or some some presenters don't love having to, or maybe can't, don't have the cognitive bandwidth to be facilitating a session and if they don't have a producer to to use some of the the tools that really make virtual uh, a much more engaging experience another issue that comes with any sort of virtual experience especially with dispersed teams again is time zone differences and allowing for time zone differences and having to repeat the same session multiple times. Another one that you always need to be mindful of, um, especially with virtual, is the, the propensity of people to want to multitask. So there, there's tons of advantages to virtual, but then there are some things you need to be um, kind of aware of too. Another piece that goes into um, considering for budget would be self-directed e-learning. I think that that can be a really, really important piece. Again, if we're talking about dispersed teams and budget impacting any sort of travel possibilities, self-directed e-learning, it, it can be pricey sometimes, depending on what you want to do, but it's also scalable, right? And so when you think of the cost over per, per learner or the cost over a series of time, you can start to really make the case for that. Um, every learner will get a consistent experience, so it doesn't depend on the facilitator. It can be used as follow-up to a facilitated session if you're if you are doing using a hybrid mix, or it can be used um, as a as a prerequisite to a facilitated session, so that people get some content, and then when they come um, virtually, you can uh, or even in person, you can actually have um, people. Uh, you can make them smaller sessions, and people can can engage a little bit more, like a flipped classroom type of approach. Um, if you know you're going to have a facilitated session after an e-learning course, then the e-learning course doesn't need branching scenarios, which can sometimes be more expensive to develop. Um, and so when you start to mix some, some different delivery strategies, you can take the best of both worlds um, without needing to go all in with your budget on one or the other. Of course, all of this assumes um, that formal training would be a solution in the first place. Um, and even if it is, informal learning pieces can also help when a budget's an issue. So that could include things just as simple as job aids, right? So right. if yeah. if um, if budget is a consideration, um, you know, is training even the answer? Or, you know, can you use, use job aids or mix job aids in with some of the other things that you're doing um, that can be posted on the internet or YouTube or podcasts or Google book clubs, um, you know, mentoring, all of those things can can really be part of a mix when budget, especially is a concern. I love that. I love some of those takeaways specifically as it relates to that concept of, 
you know, when do I need to use live? I wrote that down as we were talking. And I think the idea of, do you need to engage in gray area, right? That, mm-hmm. That's kind of a simple yes, no question that you can work with, you know, the, the stakeholders that you have or the audience you're delivering training for to achieve some sort of business outcome and say, okay, well, is there, is there nuance to this? Is there gray area? If yes, we're probably going to need to factor some sort of live component into this budget because it'll be really complicated for us to do, you know, effective training without that live interaction. I think that's a really interesting and straightforward way to de- decide, hey, is this a tool that I need for this scenario? Yeah, um, yep. And and when you think of, you know, anything that is going to be um, done via kind of e-learning, it's documented, it's in writing, it's there. And sometimes that makes people really uncomfortable, right? So yeah. some, and, and honestly, when it comes to some policies, when you think of HR policies or um, there's all, there, there is gray area, but you don't necessarily want to have that in writing. And so that's another opportunity or to think about, you know, what role does live instructor-led have um, whereas, you know, it may not be as appropriate to do it in some sort of um, job aid or right. e-learning module or things like that. Right. That, that could be a good segue. Let's talk about how the audience impacts these decisions, specifically who the audience is. So, mm-hmm. you know, the people within the organization who you're delivering training for, how might that impact your decisions uh, in terms of the the delivery methods you choose? I think that's a great question. And, and so this, the audience is a really important piece of that analysis. You know, who are, who are we delivering this to? If it's an executive level or senior level um, folks, they don't always have time to sit through a class um, or sit through a 30-minute e-learning module, um, nor will they have the attention span. And so if you're thinking executive level, you need to really think through um, what's a, what do they, what is absolutely crucial and how do we deliver that? Um, that could simply be a one pager that talks about some differences. Um, it could be, uh, you know, some sort of micro learning that you want to put in there. You know, if, if it's something that the entire organization needs to um, go through for compliance reasons or things like that. Um, again, you want to kind of figure out what's that going to be that sweet spot. Um, and, and we haven't even talked about microlearning very much here. Um, it wasn't even something that I put into my notes, but it is something that we'll want to keep in mind when, when considering an audience that may be super, super busy. Now, if we're thinking of role-specific training, um, or even training that everybody needs to take, but different people in different roles or diff- with different responsibilities throughout the organization. Um, you know, I, I love the idea of, of having e-learning as a piece to that, because with e-learning, you can design it to ask what somebody's role is from a drop-down menu, and then you can skip over certain points if it's not relevant for them. You know, the relevance yeah. is an important, important piece to any sort of learning strategy. Um, and so finding ways for people either to test out um, or to skip over certain information that's not relevant to their role, um, I think is is pretty important. Um, when you have differentiated self-directed e-learning, um, you know, and I'm just reading the book Map It by Kathy Moore, and, and she gives this great example of, um, you know, kind of a compliance training that somebody at a hospital wanted, right? They wanted to do a training about how to dispose of sharps. Now, the person handling a scalpel to a surgeon might need certain information. The nurse who administers injections might need certain information. Right. Accountants or janitorial staff um, might a lot of it might not be relevant to them, right? So, but 
if everybody needs to know at least where to find the job aids or where the other things are, where things are posted, where the sharp disposal is, then you know expose them to that information. But you don't have to expose them to everything. So right. role um, role based learning, um, I think, is something to really consider. Um, and there are some different ways to do it. You know, self-directed e-learning, as I mentioned, but you know, simply um, leaving things to a quick job aid or um, micro learning can can also be really helpful in that in that regard. That's great. I like that. I think those are very two very specific and actionable takeaways, right? If you, if you are getting really narrow in the focus, um, or if there's something that's broad but has narrow nuance, depending on the roles in the organization, I think thinking about you know job specific e-learning is a really valuable specific way to think about that. So I think that's great. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously that reminder. <laughs> with the with the executive audience of be thoughtful of their time, uh, give yeah. them what they need, and probably nothing else, <laughs> right? Uh, is is definitely a good one, and it's a good one uh, to probably have you in the audience take away uh, a good way to keep them in your corner as well. What related to audience, not the not the who, but maybe how big? How yeah. does that influence what you're going to decide to do? Yeah, one of the trickiest things that the, and the biggest challenges that I'm ever faced with is when people say, you know what, we, we need to develop a one-to-one training, um, which is like, well, I'm wired to do classroom um, and the classroom doesn't work with one-on-one. And so what do you do when you need to, to just kind of uh, train individuals because of hiring cycles, because it's a small organization, because they're specialized roles? Um, you know, one-to-one, it doesn't make sense to do a, f- a ton of formal classroom training or even, you know, virtual training. But some hybrid strategies that could work with one-to-one include, um, you know, I've talked about microlearning, um, self-directed e-learning, job shadowing, um, independent study and journaling, regular mentoring, have some sort of learning path. Um, that people, that individuals are able to go through, maybe it's a checklist with their supervisor or things like that. You know, sometimes you have a lot of people. So going from one extreme to the other, from individual training to training a ton of people. And if they're all in the same place, you know, classroom training can be a really important element. Again, it's an opportunity um, for e-learning to be either something that's pre-work or to introduce the topic or post-training uh, follow-up. Um, if they're dispersed, you may want to combine things like virtual sessions or self-paced e-learning, um, maybe even break people up into cohorts where there can be some social learning as well. Uh, people have an opportunity to make relationships a little bit better when the groups are smaller. Um, and then, you know, even a multi-week um, online course, something that you might find similar to the way that universities run um, these days or things like that. So it could be a facilitated online course as well. So you can have a couple of different extremes. I think that a lot of people um, kind of find a natural sweet spot in training people, you know, groups as small as six to as, as you know, 30, 40 people. But when you have one-on-one, that's a different set of um, kind of learning activities or learning strategies you might want to take. Uh, and when you have a, a really large group, that might be something different as well. Yeah, that's great. Brian, I love the fact that you focused on the outliers, I think, because like you said, I think uh, the audience uh, is familiar with that, that group size of six to 30, right? That's that's the sweet spot that everyone's mm-hmm. familiar with. But yep. um, the takeaways of Job shadowing, mentoring, and, and microlearning for a one-on-one uh, group is great. I might borrow some of those. We're in the process of hiring a class of one right now on one of my mm-hmm. teams because of the way it works sometimes. 
And then also the big audience, I love that idea of the cohorting to drive, uh, you know, kind of more of a social learning, right? Like if you, even if you have a course over multiple weeks, you know, that idea of putting cohorts together that might be cross functions that they could just have a social element to that learning experience where they can share and learn from one another. I, I love that. I think that's a really awesome takeaway. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, just to go back really quick to the one-on-one, yeah. um, one of the most powerful um, tools, I think, with with small groups or one-on-one is a checklist, right? So um, so that person knows what to expect, what the order should be, you know, where some certain resources are. Um, their supervisor can kind of, um, who may have 50 other things happening, um, but is responsible for their development as well, um, can kind of see where their progress is. And so um, that is another piece to just keeping it organized, but also I think that's part of the strategy. Yeah, that's great. Simple tools, right? It doesn't have to yep. be doesn't have to yep. be complicated. It's just mm-hmm. uh, use the right tool for the right job. Yeah, um, I think which is really kind of the whole the whole major takeaway from this discussion. So you mentioned it earlier. You know, in spite of the fact that we've all been living on Zoom for the better part of the last forty eight months or so, you know, digital literacy is still a thing in many organizations, right? Or we all get the dreaded. Uh, you know, system reboot uh, or software update that comes on a Friday right before a training session. And then, then all bets are really off. Uh, how does that factor uh, come into consideration as you're trying to plan for the right delivery method? Yeah. So I'm honestly, ideally, when you're addressing some sort of um, digital literacy issue, in-person instruction can can be helpful, right? Um, I I rarely have issues with with people with digital literacy when I'm doing in-person instructor led training. Now, sometimes that's not possible, um, and so other pieces that are really really important, whether people are anytime that technology is part of. Um, that hybrid approach, uh, things like job aids that just help people log in or or trying to take advantage of technologies that people are familiar with, right? So email, you can send a diagram of how to log in and how to kind of proceed through a certain thing. Or if you're going to send somebody, um, you know, a podcast that they should be listening to, uh, you know, kind of give them a visual aid in terms of step-by-step instructions. Or if they have to download something to your to your computer, giving people visual aids in terms of step-by-step instructions in order to access it, I think is, is going to be really important. Sometimes it's not just digital literacy. I've, I've worked with um, some groups where literacy itself is an issue, um, especially it, when we when we do some work in the developing world, um, and we need to really rely on job aids that have very little text. Um, we have to uh, really kind of also, again, not lose sight of the power of things like mentoring um, or just relationships um, in in those areas. Um, when it goes beyond digital literacy, um, and while we're talking about uh, different settings, whether it's rural areas here, um, or even my my home office, right? So sometimes home offices, even if you're in the most advanced parts of the world, Seattle, home of Amazon and Microsoft, um, <laughs> and yet I still um, struggle with bandwidth issues. And so yeah. sometimes bandwidth is is another challenge where we need to come up with um, one or more ways of delivering learning. And so um, with when it comes to low bandwidth areas for internet, sometimes you can uh, you know have people rely on on their smartphones and, and using data. Uh, you can still run a Zoom meeting or deliver e-learning to a mobile device. Um, and then when you start talking about mobile devices, 
you're going to need to take into account um, how are we designing that training? Are people going to be taking this on their laptops or on their phone or on a tablet? Then if they're taking it on a tablet, should we say, you know, click on because you're not clicking on anything when you have your phone, right? You're, you're yeah. tapping. And so the words that we use in instructions suddenly become important. The types of activities that we put into um, any sort of digital training, if it's going to be e-learning, you know, do drag and drop activities work as well on a phone? Um, do slider activities work as well on a phone? And so you do need to also take some of the design considerations into account when you're designing for low bandwidth or, um, you know, people who struggle with digital literacy. Yeah, I would imagine that that could also impact you know, tool selection as well, right? If you have mm -hmm. tools that you need, uh, you know, you know you're going to need to deliver, uh, you know, whether it is micro learning, a, a virtual instructor-led session, right? There are tools out there, some of which give you the ability for some offline connectivity. Now, it'll always require a download at some point. So you'll have to have mm -hmm. bandwidth at some point. But, you know, considering your audience and their bandwidth and their connectivity, um, you know, that's another factor I would imagine the audience should probably you know, be considering when they're trying to put together the right formula for their, yep. their business. Yep. How does, um, how does the objective of the course, like the, like at the end of the day, this is the, 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 the most important question, right? Mm -hmm. You're designing learning to achieve something, to achieve some yep. outcomes some behavior change. Yep. Uh, how does the scope of that objective influence the way that you might pick your right delivery pieces of your formula? Yeah, I think this is a really, really important question. Um, so, you know, a lot of times you you need to define your learning objectives before you figure out, you know, how am I going to deliver this, right? right. So um, so you're, you're thinking, okay, what is it that people need to be able to do? Um, and then you're thinking, who's my audience and how can they best digest this? But I do think that there's something to a hierarchy of, of learning objectives. And I know that there is, uh, there's a number of conversations. If you take a look at LinkedIn or Twitter in the really super nerdy L and D space, um, people will get really upset about Bloom's taxonomy and some other things. But when you think of what somebody needs to be able to do um, when, and that's the learning objectives, right? So what is it somebody needs to be able to do new or differently or better as a result of this training session? Sometimes it's awareness. And sometimes, you know, at, um, when I worked for an eye bank, so cornea transplants, um, we would train nurses on the procedures or the steps they would need to do in order to make sure that the corneas, um, were, were preserved until somebody could, could arrive and, and recover the corneas. And so for, for that training, the nurses basically needed to list three steps and we had an acronym for it. Um, so we would do a training and say, you know, expose people. These are the three steps. We'd also leave behind a job aid, you know, a little wallet size card that people could take with them that said, these are the three steps. And that was it, right? So that's, they need to be aware of the steps. And then if they needed to actually do the steps, they had a job aid to take care of it. However, if um, the learning objective goes beyond that and somebody actually needs to be able to perform something, right? They need to be able to uh, coach. They need to be able to coach their employees or they need to be able to engage people in sales conversations. It's one thing to expose people to that through an e-learning or through an instructor-led class, um, but it's another thing to follow that up, make sure that that behavior is changed and how do we do that? So having things like checklists for supervisors to observe afterwards or um, uh, you know, a follow-up 
um, email to people uh, that says, hey, um, you know, just reminding you that we went through this course and these are three steps to the sales or whatever it might be um, to figure out, you know, what's the best way to follow, follow this up a week, a month down the road? Because people do forget what it is that they learned um, when they end that, um, that learning experience. And until people can practice it enough, until people get feedback, until people, you know, kind of do it enough to change that behavior, um, then that learning objective isn't accomplished. And so when we think of learning objectives and truly what the ultimate success of a, of a, of a session or a training initiative might be, um, then I do think that we need to figure out, you know, at what level do people need to master this? And if they need to really have a deep mastery of and be and change their behavior, there needs to be more elements to that learning experience. If it's simply awareness and then knowing where to find information, you know, maybe maybe you don't need to blend it. Maybe you don't need a hybrid approach. Maybe one thing uh, is enough. I think that's great. I think that's a very specific, actionable takeaway. And I love the idea of, you know, I think everyone, uh, like you said, you know, depending on where you spend your time on LinkedIn or not, uh, you know, there might be different opinions on things. Uh, but I, I, you know, for me, for being a leader of an organization who who genuinely wants to develop everybody in my team all the time and just get them from where they are to 5% better. I think that's a very simple framework, right? Like, is it an awareness to a, a skill, to an activity, or is it actually performing the function? If those things, you know, depending on what that is, you know, maybe you need to change the delivery method to make sure that you're meeting that. It's I'll share a story. I use something similar. I had an old boss who was a fantastic uh, sales leader and sales professional, but he he always talked about this uh, a specific competency model where you would move from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent to consciously competent to conscious unconsciously competent. And I use that all the time. Uh, honestly, it's like one of the best little acronyms or, or or models. And my leaders and I talk about our people and where they are in certain skills in that context, because in practical terms, what you need to do to move somebody from unconsciously incompetent, meaning I don't even know that I don't know, to the next step is completely different than what I need to do to take somebody from consciously competent to unconsciously competent, where they could just do it in their sleep without thinking. And those are completely different parts of a, of a skill development and learning journey, um, at least in the context of a you know, a salesperson or, or a revenue owner. Um, and I think that your, your little hierarchy there, you know, that resonates a lot with me. I, uh, I agree. I think that's a great takeaway. Yeah. And, and it's been a while since I've thought of that model. And, and I was exposed to that model when I was going to grad school and organizational development and the idea of moving from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. Um, you know, it's, it's a journey. Um, right. And do, do you need to be unconsciously competent about everything um, and sometimes the answer is, yeah, like pilots. Yes, I want them to be unconsciously <laughs> competent about everything from and then some, maybe. off the landing. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, is, you know, for, for a salesperson or for, um, you know, uh, an administrative assistant or uh, for uh, a department head, you know, what is it that they need to be able to do? day to day without thinking and what is it they need to be aware of and know where to find you know some some resources when they when they when a situation comes up yeah yeah I, I completely agree I think there's some really really great takeaways there there Brian there's something I wrote down I put like a bunch of red stars against and I wanted to get back to we said early in the conversation you know you mentioned at one point 
that there are tools, I think this is during the budget conversation, that there are tools that you can use to make every virtual experience engaging. Um, and we kept going on that conversation, but I'd like to go back to that because I think mm-hmm. that like the concept of hybrid learning, we've defined it very clearly. It's a mix of delivery methods. Um, I think a lot of you in the audience in the last 48 months, that's meant I got to add more Zoom to my life and there's got to be more virtual stuff. So I'd love to sure. give team out in the audience some takeaways about, you know, what are those tools that they can use to make every virtual experience as engaging as possible? Yeah, and and I'll preface this by saying there are some people in the field that are way more knowledgeable than I am when it comes to virtual. You know, Cassie Labore comes to mind, Cindy Huggett, um, and they have ri- they've literally written books about this. And so I'll try to give a quick answer to this. When it comes to virtual engagement, uh, I think one of the key rules of thumb is to get people interacting and engaging as early as possible and starting to explore any sort of tools that we're going to be able, we're going to be using um, from the get-go. And so if we're going to be using polling, if we're going to be using breakout rooms, if we're going to be using on-screen annotation, try to build that into any of the introduction activities that we're doing um, so that people, so the tone is set and people are familiar with the with the technologies and the features that we'll be using um, in low stakes uh, conversations first. Because if somebody doesn't really know how to, you know, kind of get into breakout room or um, write on the screen, it's better to figure that out when you're asking people to put a little star on the map of the country where they're calling in from, as opposed to later in the session when you only have a minute or two for an activity um, and people are like, well, where's the, you know, where's the on-screen annotation, right? So being able to, so that's one of the really important first rules of thumb is if you're going to be using some engagement strategies later on, Try to introduce those as early as possible. The other thing that I think is really important is that um, different platforms offer different things. So you have the polling feature, you have the on-screen annotation, you have the um, breakout rooms. Those are a lot of times you have the chat, right? So those are oftentimes, you know, four of the most common ways that people can interact and engage in a virtual setting. And then there are some things that you can do outside of the environment. So you can play a game of Kahoot, for example, um, or you can uh, put other, you know, um, there's there's Mural is another technology where people can um, kind of use sticky notes and, and everybody on the, in, in the group can um, start to, like you would in person, sometimes you have people write things down in sticky notes and bring them up to the flip chart and move things around. You can do that virtually as well. And so I think that it's also really helpful for people to um, think outside of the platform when it comes to engagement strategies, because and 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 take a look at what K twelve teachers have done over the past two years, because they were masters at you know figuring out what are some different technologies that I can have my students who are second graders um, doing in order to engage. Um, pick it up quickly and engage. And there's lots of other little tools out there that K-12 teachers were using early on in the pandemic that I think would really behoove those of us in corporate learning um, to really take a page out of their book. Um, all that said, obviously, it, all, it also goes back to the learning objectives, right? So what is it that people should be able to do? Um, and then making sure that you're you're selecting the right activities in order to, to get people to engage. But 
don't don't say that just because it's virtual and you don't have physically people in front of you that you can rely on PowerPoint to, to go through an hour session because that's, that's not the case, right? Yeah. It's, it's, if, if it's boring, um, you know, in person, it's going to be boring virtually as well. I, I really love the idea and the takeaway to, to go, go, uh, go pull a K to K through 12 teacher that, <laughs> that, you know, that mm-hmm. experiences, that's another great, uh, outside resource that, uh, our corporate learning and development professionals here in the audience can, um, really take away because that's a great point, right? At the end of the day, that the audience they need to engage with uh, has a completely different context. So there could be some really cool tools that uh, and resources they can find there. Brian, I have to I have to thank you again. This has been fantastic. Before we wrap, you know, if there's any way that the audience wants to continue to to hear about what you're doing, what Endurance is doing, um, where can they find you? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, I'll put out a shameless plug for a website that we have. It's free for people to go to. It's called 51elementsoflearning.com. So if you want to think of, you know, what could be the array of, of learning elements that we could bring into a hybrid um, program, then that is a re- kind of, it's an interactive website that has a periodic table. You click on the different elements and it explains more about each of the elements and what which other elements you might want to combine your elements with. Um, so that's one kind of cool way for people to think through um, a hybrid learning approach. And then if people wanted to get in touch with me, they can always drop me an email at brian at endurancelearning.com. I'm always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn too. So, um, and, and have virtual coffee. And so if you do, if you are listening to this, you decide, oh, I want to connect with Brian Washburn at Endurance Learning, go on LinkedIn, find me, um, connect with me, but don't just add the connection. Drop me a note saying, hey, I heard you on the podcast and it would be fun to grab virtual coffee sometime. And I'd love to, to chat. That's great. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you sharing the, the website too. That's a great resource. We'll, we'll grab a link to that and leave that in the show notes so that the uh, so our audience here can uh, grab that and, and go engage. That's, a, that's an awesome resource. Um, Thank you again, Brian. This has been a great conversation. I know there's a ton of actionable takeaways that I have for the <laughs> for the training responsibilities I have here for my teams. Um, and, I, and I know our audience will really appreciate this as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. The Secret Society of Success is hosted by Mimeo, the better way to print. Check out our sister podcast, Talk of the Trade, for tips and tricks for sales and marketing leaders. Visit www.mimeo.com for more information.